So I want to I want to let a few verses out of Psalm 119 lead us into prayer tonight. So just listen to these and I'll pray for us. Pray with me as I do. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. Lord, this is our prayer that you would give us the abundance that your word has for us, that we would live and that we would keep your word, that by seeing it, that by hearing it, by talking about it tonight, we would know more of you, more of your face, more of your goodness, more of your grace to us. And God, will we take hold of that by faith and to begin to live out of that in everything that we think, say, and do in our day-to-day lives. Lord, for every one of us who come into this place, Lord, give us the eyes of faith. Open our eyes that we would behold you and behold the wondrous things in your word. Lord, we're sojourners here and we need you to lead us and guide us, to feed us, and to give us life. So Lord, by your spirit and by your word tonight, do all of that. Do it for our good and do it for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. What we're about to do is spend about 25, 30 minutes in the Bible because we love God's word. And we love his word because God in his mercy and kindness reveals himself to us in it. Like that fact alone is worthy of our spending time in the Bible, that God would show us who he is that he would show us how we can know him, how we can be saved from our sin, how we can grow into the kind of people God made us to be. So that's what we're going to be talking about. That's why we love the Bible. I don't assume everybody in this room, self-included, understand it all. And so if that's you, if you have questions, doubts, things you're going to struggle with that you hear tonight, that you've heard about Christianity, or that you've always wondered about, don't struggle alone. Again, find me, find someone on our staff or or on our ministry team. We would love to talk with you about that. Um, So, yeah, don't don't struggle alone. Let's talk together. Uh, All right. So speaking of getting older, let's just jump jump right in. Uh, The older I get, the more I realize I like the idea of winter more than I actually like winter. You feel? Okay. I I especially like the December version of winter, like the the starting to wear sweaters and hoodies, the the anticipation, the joy of of Christmas, making fires in in the wood stove, watching playoff football games, making chili cookies, hot cider, the wonder of the first snowfall. But then January 2nd comes, and, and I'm, t- I'm done with it. I don't love the cold. I've gained 10 pounds because of the cookies, and it's too cold to exercise. I'm tired of shoveling snow. And on top of all that, things just look sad. The snow is dirty. The skies are gray. The trees are barren, and everything, everything just kind of looks dead, doesn't it? It's why seasonal depression is a thing. Like, it's a real thing. 
But, but a few years ago, a helpful realization hit me that, that I think has helped me appreciate winter a little bit more. And, and that realization was this, creation doesn't stop working during winter. It just goes underground for a little bit. Everything, here's what I mean by that. Everything may look dead and barren, but God is at work nurturing seeds and bulbs so that they can burst forth in spring. See, the beauty that we see every spring can only happen because of God's subterranean, below-the-surface work in winter. I think that's a pretty good analogy for life. We all have seasons and some are really hard. Some of those feel really long where things seem dead and barren and we wonder where God is. We wonder if God has forgotten us. They're kind of like winters of the soul. But here's the thing, God never stops his work. We may not see it. It might be subterranean for a time, but for all who are, it, who are His, God is at work to redeem us and restore us, to bring forth spring-like beauty in our lives, even through those, those seasons of winter. And that's exactly what God's doing in the book of Ruth, which we're going to start a series on tonight. We'll take three or four weeks to, to start the book of Ruth. Against the bleak background of trial and tragedy, God was working to restore and redeem. We're going to see it in the life of Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law. We're going to see it in the life of Ruth. We're going to see it in God's people as a whole. And I really hope, I really hope we'll see it in our own lives as well. Tonight in Ruth chapter 1, we're going we're gonna to break it into three sections and we're going to talk about four different ways from those three sections we see God at work redeeming and restoring Ruth and Naomi and God's people. We'll look specifically at these four things. God's sovereignty over suffering. God's hesed love. I'll explain that if you don't know what that means. God's redemption and God's restoration. So God's sovereignty over suffering, God's hesed love, God's redemption, and God's restoration. So let, let's start here. I'll, I'll take them section by section, and we'll, we'll just kind of talk about each by section. So God's sovereignty over suffering, or in other words, God's hand at work, sovereignty over suffering. So we'll see it here in Ruth 1. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Otherwise, I think it'll be on the screen here. This is God's word. <clears throat> in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and re remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, 
to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lift up, lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter for me to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. We'll stop there. We'll pick it up in our, our next section or two sections from now. Verse 1 at the very beginning, I don't know if you caught it, gives us a historical marker. In other words, where this shows up in the historical context of the whole of Scripture, it says this line, in the days when the judges ruled. Okay, so let, let me give you kind of a, a place in time. So God, uh, a few weeks ago, we had uh, uh, guest speaker Burris came and kind of laid out God's giving of the covenant to his people. And, and he said, God came and called Abraham. And then from Ab Abraham came Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And it was in Joseph that Israel went into Egypt and they remained in Egypt for 400 years. They were there as slaves. And after that time of 400 years, God delivered them through the Exodus and he brought them out in this amazing deliverance. That's where he stood up the Red Sea on both sides and he brought his people through and he brought the water back in on the Egyptians. So Israel came through and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And then God finally brought them into the promised land. And as they came into the promised land, they needed leadership. And so they were led by this group of people called the judges. So that's where we are. After the judges come Saul, David, Solomon, and then the, the kingship. Does that make sense? So just trying to give you some markers. But here's the thing you need to know about the time of the judges. Um, uh, TJ, you got your Bible open. R right to the left of Ruth is Judges. Find the last verse in the book of Judges. And here's, this is like the best summary of what was going down in the book of Judges. Go ahead and give that to me. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what seemed right to him. Wait, say that again. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. And everyone did what seemed right to him. Think about that. Is that, a, is that a culture you want to be a part of? Is that a society you want to be a part of? What we just heard from the book of Judges was it was a mess. People were doing whatever they wanted to do. God had given them his law. God had given them his commandments but they were doing whatever they wanted to do. And because of their rebellion, God sent a famine on the land, and that's the famine we just read about in Ruth 1 as judgment over his people. 
And because of that famine, Elimelech and his wife Naomi left the promised land, specifically their hometown of Bethlehem. That's, that's going to come back. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come. And they go to this country called Moab. On the surface, it seems like a logical decision, right? Food was scarce, so they go to a place where they might find food. But on a deeper spiritual level, this was a tragic choice. Think about it. Think about what they left. They left behind the land God had promised for his people. This was the promised land. It was the land where God would provide for his people. Even when things got hard, even when there was a famine, God would provide for them. In that land, they left behind the tabernacle, the place where God had promised to meet with his people as they worshiped him. It was the place where God's people were. They left all of that to go to Moab, a land of idolatry and ungodliness. So it was in Moab that Elimelech dies. Their two sons, Malon and Kilion, married Moabite wives, and the two sons then died. So in the space of those 10 years, Naomi's bleak story included a famine, grieving the deaths of her husband and her two sons, no children, no grandchildren to carry the family name or to care for her in her old age. These were devastating years for Naomi. While she didn't understand the why behind all of this, Naomi did understand the who. If you look at verse 13, the last verse we just read, that's pretty clear there. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. If we jump down to verse 21, she repeats that. The Lord has brought me back empty. Naomi didn't attribute her circumstances to fate or chance. She knew better. All that she was experiencing was because of the hand of the Lord. Naomi couldn't yet see what God was doing, but she did know it was God who was doing the doing. God was in control. He is the sovereign over all things, even our suffering. And here's why that's really good news. That might seem odd that that's good news, but here's why that's good news. Because if God is sovereign over all our circumstances, if God is sovereign over all our suffering, then there's purpose to it. There's design to it. There's a hand at work, God's hand at work behind it all. In all that he brings into the lives of his people, God is working all things together for good and for his glory. Whether we see it or not, the flowers will burst forth. Second way we see God's hand at work is in Hesed love. Again, I'll define it for you in just a second. While Naomi's faith was being tested and tied, her theology remained true. What she believed about God was an anchor for her in the storm. Not only did she know God's sovereignty in her suffering, she knew God's Hesed love. Now, hesed is a Hebrew word. It's used there in verse 8. Can you? Yeah, it's there on your screen. And, and it's where Naomi says this to the daughters-in-law, may the Lord deal kindly with you. 
So that phrase, deal kindly with you. She's basically saying, may the Lord show his said love to you. And she could only wish this for her daughters-in-law if she knew God to be the God of this kind of love. I still haven't defined it for you, have I? I'm about to. There's a, a quote that's going to help me do this. This is from a book by, uh, by a guy named Paul Miller. You can, you can follow along because it's a long quote. Sometimes hesed is translated steadfast love. By the way, this, this uh, verb shows up over 250 times in the Old Testament. So it's a big deal when God wants to relate how, or communicate how he relates to his people. So it's translated steadfast love. It combines commitment with sacrifice. Hesed is one-way love, love without an exit strategy. When you love with hesed love, you bind yourself to the object of your love, no matter what the response is. So if the object of your love snaps at you, you still love that person. If you've had an argument with your spouse in which you were slighted or not heard, you refuse to retaliate through silence or withholding your affection. Your response to the other person is entirely independent of how that person has treated you. Hesed is stubborn love. It doesn't mean that we don't have moments and days when we don't, where, we, where we have the cranks or share how fragile our spirit is. We just refuse to let it affect us. Hesed is the opposite of the spirit of our age, which says we have to act on our feelings. Hesed says, no, you act on your commitments. The feelings will follow. Love like this is unbalanced, uneven. There's nothing fair about this kind of love. But this commitment love lies at the heart of Christianity. It is Jesus' love for us at the cross, and it is to be our love for one another. Do you know the stubborn, steadfast, sacrificial love of God for you? He loves his people with an unshakable, unbreakable, hesed love. And if you're here tonight and you're his, nothing, not your circumstances, not your sin, not your shame, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Since you've been loved with this hesed love, the other implication of this and, and I'll put it in the form of a question is, will you love others with this same kind of love? Even those who might be a challenge to love. Take a minute. Don't, don't say anything out loud. <laughs> take, take a minute and ask that question. Who is God calling you to love with a hesed love? Who has God put in your orbit? in your daily life. That he wants you to love with the kind of love that he has shown to you. Got it? Next few days, look for a chance. Ask God for an opportunity. Maybe go out of your way for an opportunity to show that kind of love to that person. That's how said love. That was God's hand at work in Naomi and Ruth. Hopefully in us too. God's hand at work 
number three, redemption. We'll read on in Ruth 1. So we'll start in 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and, all, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So Naomi urged her daughters-in-law to go back to their families and their homes. There'd be nothing for them in going back with Naomi back to Bethlehem. So they said their weepy goodbyes, and Orpah went back to her family. But Ruth stayed. Listen again to her response. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Listen to this. Your people shall be my people. And your God shall be my God. That's an incredible statement. Because those are the very words, that last sentence that I just repeated for you. Those are the, the very words God used when he made his covenant with his people. He said those words, I will be your God and you will be my people. And it's repeated in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, as God made covenants with his people, I will be your God and you will be my people. Ruth was using the language of the covenant because she had come to know the God of the covenant. God had redeemed her. Ruth had been changed from the inside out. This woman who was once a stranger to God and to his promises, God had changed her heart and now she was a worshiper of the one true God. The text doesn't tell us how it happened. And we can imagine maybe several ways. Maybe Ruth had heard Naomi reciting the scriptures or crying out to God in prayer. Maybe she had heard stories of how God had delivered his people out of Egypt. However it happened, Ruth had come to believe and was now redeemed. She was now forgiven of her sin. She was made right with God. And if you think about it in, in the, the context of this whole story, it's even more amazing, isn't it? Against that dark background of all the suffering that, that Naomi and Ruth and Orpah had gone through, all the more amazing, God was behind it all. Or, or to, to use our opening, he was subterranean working to weave this beautiful work of redemption into the heart of Ruth. And God's not done. God's still weaving the work of redemption into hearts today. The New Testament comes along and says, all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And that invitation is open to you tonight. But listen, salvation only comes to those who know they need saving. And redemption only comes to those who know they need redeeming. We just sang those words. All the fitness that God requires is to feel your need of him. To feel your need 
of Him. So do you see your need of Him? Do you know that you need a Savior? That your sin has left you hopeless and helpless under the judgment of God? You cannot save yourself. You cannot. You can't be good enough to pay for your sin. No amount of good works can pay that debt. Only Jesus' death on the cross can do that. Only he can save you. Only he can redeem you. And so will you trust in God's work of redemption? Well, God's hand at work, number four, restoration. Restoration. And we'll jump to our last section for that. Verse 19. So the two of them, Naomi and Ruth, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, are, are, are signals going off in your brain as you hear Bethlehem? Like, I can't wait to talk about why this matters, but it doesn't come up tonight, so hang in there. Please come back, because I can't wait to tell you about it. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, which by the way means pleasant, when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Note well those last few words of 22. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And now put those words alongside the words of verse 6 where Naomi says these words. She had heard, or, or it's spoken about Naomi. She had heard that the field of Moab, from the field of Moab, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Here's what that means. God has not abandoned his people. Though they rebelled against him, his judgment would not last forever. God was restoring his people. Their emptiness was being turned to fullness. Their famine was being turned to feasting because God is a God who restores. And, and I just want to name that because I think we can be a lot like Naomi in this last section and get so focused on what we don't have. Did you see that there in verses 20 and 21? All Naomi could see was the emptiness and the bitterness, which I think we would understand given her losses. But it was blinding her. Those things were blinding her from seeing God's grace in what she did have, right? Like, like how God had cared for her in Moab those 10 years like how God had brought her back to the promised land. Here's a woman without her husband with another single woman, and they get there safely because God had brought them there. Like how God had given her a loving and loyal daughter-in-law, and like God was now providing food for the whole land. God was restoring in abundance. Let me put this story on pause for a second. Let me ask you this question. If you're in Christ, what have you been given? 
Another way to ask that, what graces or, or what gifts do you enjoy if you're in Christ? Talk back to me. I want to hear your answers. Himself. Himself. Good. Yeah, that's a good place to start. <laughs> what, what have you been given? Friendship. What's that? Friendship. Friendship. Peace. Peace. Mercy. Mercy. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Joy. Joy. Assurance of pardon. Assurance of pardon. What else you got for me? Hope. Kayla, what do you got? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> we got to talk some more. <laughs> Hope. Yeah. Here's a list. Like forgiveness of sin, shame covered, peace with God, eternal life, adoption as sons and daughters, the spirit living in me, his word, grace and mer- Yeah, y'all said some of these. Grace and mercy, hope and comfort, sanctification, which are our process of becoming made like Jesus, growth. I want you to hear these things about you. If you're in Jesus, your name is not bitter. Your name is blessed. And in no way, in no way am I minimizing your suffering or your circumstances. Those can be bitter and they do get bitter. But I want to remind you of a deeper truth. That you have a God who redeems and restores. And all those things are true of you tonight and every day that you live on this planet. So fix your eyes on him, the one who restores his people. We're about to sing one of my favorite songs that we do here, We Will Feast. We're going to sing these words, We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things, we will say together. Funny that I'm weeping as I say this. We will, we, we will feast and weep no more. It's a song that points us to that day when we will be made perfect and complete in the presence of God, the house of Zion, where we will know the true peace of shalom, where everything is made right and all will be as it should be. No more weeping, no more suffering, no more sin, no more curse. I want you, I want us to set our hope on that day. And I want you and I want us to set our hope on our God who redeems and restores. Do that tonight. Let's pray. Father, we... We come after hearing and and reading these words and we're in awe at who you are. That you would love us with this kind of steadfast love. That you would redeem and restore a rebellious people like we are. That you would be sovereign over all things, even in the things that are hard and terrible in this broken world and you use them, you redeem them in our lives to make us more into the image of Christ and also to give us the hope that that's not the end of the story but we have eternal life in your presence. Thank you for that that feast that we will have in your presence. 
and thank you that that doesn't just start at some future time, but that abundance has already begun in the here and the now. God, I pray that every heart here would partake of that tonight. Thank you that you are this good. Thank you that you are this glorious. We love you and we thank you that we can say that because you first loved us. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.